there's this great irony, right? As soon as your, uh, your app is reminding you to do something, that's now an extrinsic motivator. And so intrinsic motivation is extremely difficult to tap into. But with that said, we do try as hard as we can to tap into intrinsic motivation um, because, you know, there, there is something magical about it. Reminding people of their goals that they've set themselves can be helpful. One approach for doing this is providing them with, a, with some, some limited choice or choice with constraints. Welcome to the MindTech Podcast, where we dive deep into the unsolved problems in mental health with the founders, investors, and experts building technology to solve them. In this episode, we meet a digital product leader who translates behavioral science into health products that achieve lasting behavior change. Arlene Holdsworth has earned many impressive stripes as an applied behavioral scientist, including behavioral science lead in the health AI team at Apple, head of behavioral science at Pattern Health, a digital health platform motivating patients to engage with their care, and the principal of the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University, where she redesigned systems to help people make better health decisions. Today, she and her team run Nuance, harnessing the best of behavioral science to achieve scalable behavior change in technology-enabled products. Listen to learn Arlene's take on the most effective incentives that mental health apps can give their users to achieve lasting behavior change, how to leverage a user's intrinsic motivation to close the gap between intention and action, and the three most relevant behavioral science concepts to mental health technology. Let's dive in. Welcome, Aileen. It's an honor to have you here. How are you? I'm doing excellent. How about yourself? Wonderful. Thank you. It's an early start for me, but as I said, it's going to inject my day with energy and enthusiasm, so I'm excited. Yeah, it, it's tough to find uh, an acceptable overlap between Australia and the US. <laughs> I've definitely struggled with that in the past. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's literally a very small window in the day, but I'm glad we made it work because you have a wealth of wonderful experiences that I think have so much to contribute to this kind of discussion. In particular, you've, you've worn so many hats as a behavioral scientist. You've been a researcher, a product manager, the director of a startup lab, a consultant, and the behavioral science lead in health AI at Apple. So my first question to you, which is quite nice because it gives a good little intro there, is which role do you feel you were most able to make an impact on Ooh. outcomes in behavioral health? Impact on outcomes. That's great. Um, yeah, I and I definitely like there. So you mentioned a, a pretty wide variety of things. There's also an evolution over time, right? So I really kind of started out on the more academic side and working like very much with experimentation and research. And that was a lot of fun. I love running experiments. But I think to your point, the the impact i was not feeling the impact very much in the in the exclusive research world where where it was so academically focused and um while you have the freedom to just kind of test whatever you want it's not very clear that that's going to lead to anything right and so that's why now i consider myself an applied behavioral scientist where if i'm doing testing it is to 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 achieve some purpose to understand like how does this uh, actually um, impact outcomes in the real world and it's often not so much a lab study that I'm running when I do research now it's something um, uh, you know it's it, it's it's really out in the world with with a, a 
an organization's real customers and so on. And so I've really moved more towards the product space now. And that I would say feels much more impactful if you can really use the behavioral insights, uh, if you if you can really leverage them in your work. And and it's tough to, you know, it doesn't always work to do that, but I think that um that my work as as a you know scientifically informed uh, product designer which is sort of sometimes what I call it I, I I call myself all kinds of different things as well so <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have trouble uh, getting any sort of consistency out of me um, but uh, but yeah I think that 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 is um, you know the the product world is where it feels more more real more tangible and that people's lives are actually being impacted I guess the development arc that you mentioned there is necessary in a way going from academic research learning about everywhere everything that the field has has done up until this point feeling uh, like you're at the leading edge of what's the latest research and then being able to take that step into okay now let's apply that in the real world with teams and creating products so yeah you've uh, I like the evolution spin that you put on that but I don't want I don't want anyone to go away under the impression that I have sort of left research behind, right? Because research mm-hmm. is so important within product, and that's really like doing experimentation and and iterating on your product design. That is really critical to getting it right. You can you can you know say, oh, I've designed this product with all of the literature and behavioral science in mind. But until you actually go out and understand the nuance in your particular context with your particular users, you don't really know. <laughs> you don't really have any idea that the, 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 uh, the, the thing that you've created is actually better than what you would have created without that you know, behavioral science lens, for example. Yeah, I guess so much of behavioral science is experimentation, even more than in other fields particularly with real world experiments. And I think there's so many variables that you try and control. It it can never feel perfect, but that's almost why the experiments are that much more worthwhile doing because it's it's such a hard field to get uh, a result that you can rely on. So you have to do so many experiments so that you can look at all of them and then you can have a bit more of a reliable result, really. So I guess my, my next question to you then is, why does the intersection of behavioral science, which includes all of these experiments into human nature and technology, have so much potential to improve behavioral health? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, part of it is just that that um, the world that we live in now is is just so, um, you know, technology is so ubiquitous. Um, everyone is walking around carrying these perfect little intervention devices, their smartphones and their smartwatches, all of their all of their the different technologies but that, you know, we can access people in ways that was never true before. If you look at behavioral science research you know even like 20 years ago it was like you know people had pagers that were like timers that beeped and they'd have to do some sort of diary study and like really pretty lame um and and that was just in the the research world in the applied world there was almost nothing so uh so the opportunity to just um to you know be at the at the at the right place which is you know in in someone's pocket at the right time is just tremendous. And that was not always true. And so I think technology has changed so much just in terms of that opportunity. And uh, yeah, a lot of people are leveraging that opportunity, some better than others. Um, But yeah, I think that's a, a big part of it. 
So it's the, the data feeding the insights, as well as the tools to be able to facilitate that behavior change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess one of the most fascinating aspects of behavioral science to me is motivating people to make the right choices by giving them the right incentives. And I think in a mm. world where incentives feel quite misaligned between those who are in power and those who aren't in power, I think behavioral science has a great contribution to make here. But specifically in mental health and mental health technologies, how do you think we can incentivize people to not only engage, but also cultivate a lasting commitment to any tools that facilitate them taking care of their mental health. Yeah, interesting. I And I think, so, so you talk about incentives. Incentives are, are one way of, uh, of facilitating behavior change, but there's a whole toolbox out there, right? And I think that... Um, you know, even before you get to incentives, you can say, what are what are most, um, you know, digital health companies, for example, doing in order to engage their users and get them to, to uh, you know, to, to fill that intention action gap where people say, I would like to, you know, do X, Y, Z for my health, but I don't actually do that. And uh, I, I sort of think of it as, as the different levels of intervention. And the first one is what most companies do, which is, you know, very, very basic. It's extremely popular way of, uh, uh, you almost wouldn't call it an intervention. It's providing information, right? This is, you know, the basic, basic tools, basic information. Um, it, it fully relies on the user to, to take charge and to set it up. Um, and that tends to not be very effective because people already know they should get enough sleep and, you know, they mm. they know uh, which stress management techniques would help. Um, and you know, I I don't exclusively work in mental health, but you know, I'll, you know, they know that they they shouldn't be um, you know using their phone right before bed. They should limit their screen time and so on. And so so providing people with that information, even when the information is something like tracking your screen time, um, just it just isn't that effective. Like I you know. I, my screen time is tracked. I'm sure that your screen time is tracked. And do we ever actually look? What <laughs> do we ever actually look at the at the chart to see? You know how we're doing. Um, but then you can go uh, go a, a level up from that. You start to get a little more sophisticated with insights and trends. This is definitely gaining popularity within digital health companies. So you can tell someone, oh, like, hey, you tend to uh, spend less time outdoors when you spend more time on social media. And so, you know, mostly intuitive types of things, but it's personalized and it, it gets at the, you know, it, it gets at the heart of what's going on and, and might have a slightly uh, larger impact on on what's going on there. And then you have the, the third level um, of behavior change facilitation. And this is sort of where the, the applied behavioral scientist lives and, and tries to get digital health companies to, to adopt this sort of mindset or, or, or this approach to product design. And here you can, you know, you know, you can actually go a, a step further. You can take an active role in helping users carry out their best intentions and, and really cross that intention action gap, um, helping people utilize those tools more effectively. Um, so like suggesting or placing a limit on screen time rather than just saying, here's what you're doing, here's what you could do, right? Um, imposing consequences for exceeding that 
limit that that they've agreed upon. Um, and like you said, incentives, right? And and incentives don't have to be. I think a, a lot of the time when you talk about incentives, you think of financial incentives, right? Um, but I think like one of my favorite types of incentives is actually a social incentive. How can you get people, you know, create accountability buddies, get match people up, and uh, you know, you create some some kind of a commitment, and then your, your best friend or your sibling or whoever holds you accountable to that commitment. Um, that can be one of the most effective forms of uh, of reaching your goals. That is a, a great step-by-step approach of how to elevate one's approach to behavior change. And incentives, yeah, it's it's beyond just uh, financial. The social one's really, really interesting. Of course, even then, um, finding out what people value and what they need is the first step, really, to be able to know how to incentivize them. So I guess... A way yeah. of doing that first with these tools would be the most logical place to start. Also, it's it's interesting. You can make the best external rewards in the world, but the power of intrinsic motivation trumps all of those things, right? So in your work, do you ever get the chance to foster that sense of intrinsic motivation beyond external rewards? It, it's really tough because as soon as... <laughs> <laughs> there's this great irony, right? As soon as your uh, your app is reminding you to do something, that's now an extrinsic motivator. And so intrinsic motivation is extremely difficult to tap into. And, you know, there are also areas where people are not that intrinsically motivated, for example, to, you know, take their medication or, you know, so if, if you're not, uh, if you're not in, in great shape, then exercise, if you don't enjoy exercise, like that's, you're not intrinsically motivated to exercise until you've already built an exercise habit. And, and sometimes you need some extrinsic motivators in order to get there. Um, with that said, uh, that we do we do try as hard as we can to tap into intrinsic motivation um, because you know there is, there is something magical about it and reminding uh, reminding people of their goals that they've set themselves is can be helpful um, and getting there is often um, you know you, you know you have to uh, kind of lead people to form their goals because people don't always have. Uh, fully formulated goals in mind, and so you um, one approach for doing this is providing them with a with some some limited choice or choice with constraints. So essentially, you you know you can ask someone what is the what's your you know reason for being here today in this health app, and you know maybe it's to, to improve my heart health, or maybe it's uh, you know I you know maybe it's because I want to connect with others, or or you know so like whatever that thing is, giving. People people some options, but not too many options, you know, finding that right balance between enough choice, but not overload in choice. Um, that can really help people both be more clear themselves on what their motivations are, and then choose something and then help them reflect on what that thing was later. And you can kind of, you know, once you've, <laughs> once you've led them to, to their motivation and their goal and so on, um, facilitating that process, because it's hard to do on your own. Setting goals is not easy. And, you know, that's part of the reason that we don't do it. Um, so, but, but once you've, you know, sort of led people down that path, then you can help them uh, set commitments if they would like to and remind them of the reason that they wanted to do that thing in the first place. That's wonderful. So connecting people with those parts of themselves that their motivations that are serving them well, right? So even though we can't 
make people choose necessarily what they're intrinsically motivated by. We can help them reconnect with what those drivers are so that it can be in full force with enacting that behavior change. Very interesting. Yeah. And, and this is a, a, you know, a somewhat common step in an onboarding process, right? If you think about different health apps that are out there, you go in and you say, what, you know, why are, what do you want to achieve? Why do you want to achieve that? And then I think the, maybe the missed step that, that really um, could amplify one's intrinsic motivation is actually saving that information and then presenting it back to people. I, I see this information collected all the time. Do I see it utilized? Like almost never. I almost never mm. am told like, oh, do you remember how you said, this is what you said, you know, how can we, you know, how can we go the next step towards, uh, towards doing that? Yeah. Another interesting uh, challenge for mental health and behavioral health apps in particular is, as you may very well know, user retention and engagement. <laughs> so many um, download the app and have those good intentions. But as you mentioned, not only helping people make that gap between intention and action, but keeping them there, keeping them taking action is is very tough, particularly for these behavioral health and mental health apps. So from your understanding of behavioral science, what do you think are the key factors in creating digital tools that maximize retention and engagement mm. for users? Yeah, uh, I think part of it is getting to a higher level of intervention. So uh, many of these apps are just, you know, you go in and it's, you know, it's got your dashboard of educational materials and that's just not really what people want. Sometimes they, that's, they say that, that, that that's what they want, but it's not actually what they want. No one, you know, you have to provide something useful and valuable to users. Um, and, and one way of doing that, uh, I think is by by bringing in their connections to the real world. And this is, you know, this is tough, right? You have to actually convince them to invite a friend or, you know, set up a challenge with someone else. But as soon as you have that tie to the, to the real, their real world relationships, that is so much stronger than, you know, any sort of commitment to, you know, some dumb app that you, you know, and when you're in the moment, you think it's a really great idea to meditate every day. And then, you know, tomorrow you're like, what? I don't actually want to do that. So, but, but uh, if you can establish a commitment when someone is in that frame, when they're, when they're in that moment of being motivated and then, you know, help them hang on to that in, you know, the, the tomorrow land where they're no longer motivated, that can be really helpful. I think that also plays a role in helping people connect offline as well. Absolutely. Learning, learning what the app has to offer in terms of the information and basically telling them what they kind of maybe already know, but just bringing it to their attention and then helping them uh, create accountability systems in the real world so that they can be held accountable, but also feel connected with the real world and um, engage um, in, in that space as well. And, Very you know, the, those, those real world connections are probably going to have a greater boost to their well-being than anything that the app is getting them to do anyway right those two minutes of meditation a day like that's that's not going to make as much of a difference as increasing the 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 time and the quality of your relationships outside of the app so if you can do that like you're already winning absolutely can you think of any examples of products that have been able to do this very well part of the problem is that 
I believe many digital health companies are so focused on engagement within their technology that they miss out on the fact that the greater benefit is being outside. And they also equate the value of interacting online, so so your sort of social media type of interactions, with with being as valuable as as offline relationships. And that's just not the case. Um, of course, there are there are ways to use social media in uh, and impact people positively. So, for example, um, you know when it supplements real world interactions as opposed to replacing them. Um, if you can, it, but it really gets back to um, enhancing your your real life relationships rather than replacing them, um, substituting them. So, uh, it, it's it's you know it. We talked a little bit about incentives. You can think about incentives in uh, in the product world as well, right? Um, if mm-hmm. you're if you're a company and you have investors and they're track your the you know, the KPIs that are important are your uh, your you know monthly visitors and you know how much time people spend on your app. Well, that's inherently flawed, and I think that that a lot of digital health products fall pray to this when what they should be doing is helping people increase and improve the quality of their external relationships. I agree. Perhaps that's a space that is pretty open and in need of innovation then, which I'd love to love to see happen. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh because you know in behavioral science there's so many different laws of human behavior that you guys <laughs> have, right? Like there's all these biases, there's all these laws right yes there are there are there are many theories and frameworks and uh and long lists of biases and heuristics is that what you're getting at <laughs> yeah yeah well um that's that's one of the things that behavioral science is is famous for right because you can tell hmm. these fascinating stories of experiments that demonstrate some of these laws in action and my question is what do you think are some of the most consequential laws um Hmm. in this way uh to designing products for behavioral health and they may be those three that you have developed yourself but just putting some of those heuristics and biases and laws in the context of behavioral health here which ones do you think are most pivotal i think especially when we're talking about products the most useful concepts to keep in mind are the intention action gap i think that's probably number one, because so often you come across the assumption that users will do what's in their best interest. And it's that's just simply not the case, right? We see it time and time again. And, you know, this is why we have such, such problems in, uh, in health, right? It's because people are not, people know what they should do, and they're not doing that. So I think that is, that's extremely important. The second, I think, is just the limited attention of users. I think I see see a lot of onboarding processes and and digital health apps with you know a hundred steps and long questionnaires and all this friction to to signing up to getting to where they want to be, and it it feels very company centric rather than user centric. So um, I, I'm I have a, a a tagline which is product for humans and it it really just gets at this like designing for humans and how humans behave and how they react and what motivates them and so on and i think that understanding that you know the perspective of your users is not necessarily the 
perspective of your company is a really important step uh, to doing so. And then uh, lastly, just friction and fuel in general, right? So thinking about what are all the barriers that a user encounters to getting to their target behavior and how can you decrease that friction in order to get them there more quickly or at all? And then uh, thinking about fuel in terms of what what are those motivating factors that make the behavior or the path to the behavior more appealing, um, easier to do, and so on. Um, and so I think those, that's, if I had to choose, you know, mm-hmm. there are so many, but, but those I would say are the top, uh, in my intro to applied behavioral science, those are the ones I would, I would highlight. Okay, those are very practical. And I think they could go a long way in informing better product designs for humans and our human nature. But when these products are released and put out there and people are using them, how do you measure the success of these mm. behavioral health interventions? Oh, man. Uh, so it depends, right? <laughs> it depends what, what yeah, your lens is. Uh, when, when you're in a, a products team, uh, you have the bottom line to report to, and that's you, you don't forget about that. Um, but at the same time, you all also have to keep an eye on your long-term outcomes. And if your users are not achieving their goals, that they're not going to stick with you in the long term. So even if you have, you know, a huge amount of signups and retention in the short term, that might actually not last in the long term if people are ultimately not reaching their goals. And so what I really like to think about is uh, Heather Cole Lewis is a behavioral scientist who has who has this. Um, big E and little E framework. And so she talks about the big E being the E in engagement, right? The big E is, um, you know, are users engaging in the actual thing that you want them to, to, to do and say it's like, you know, toothbrushing, for example, are they brushing their teeth? Um, and then the little E is, are they using the, you know, the digital health tool that is, you know, it, it has these behavioral interventions in it that, uh, you know, is designed to help them brush their teeth. And so here your, you know, your product is this app and you're measuring, I don't know, how long are they in the app? You know, are they, you know, you know, checking off the boxes and playing the games that, you know, are, are around toothbrushing or watching the videos. You really ultimately care about the biggie there of toothbrushing, not so much of the, you know, how long they're in the app, even if your incentives tell you otherwise. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges for these uh, little e companies because when we want to help people change their behavior in a healthy way, that's that's a positive ethical stance. But we also don't want them to become reliant on these technologies. We would like to help them develop self-reliance. So again, it's a kind of like incentive thing where the better your intervention is the shorter amount of time and the longer lasting the implications of it uh, in the person's life so mm-hmm. how do we make sure that the companies and the users are well aligned there and yeah. is there a way of facilitating long-term engagement without having such a mode of reliance on that technology yeah it- it is, yeah, it's tough, right? And I think part of it is um, is a measurement problem. It's often much easier to measure little e than it is to measure big e. 
Um, but if you can find a way to measure big E and incorporate that into your financial models and show like this is really what success means to us, then I think you can start to get there. Um, but it's not easy. I'll just say that again. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's still a conflict to 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 overcome. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think this intention action gap is fascinating because as a doctor um, and for any clinician or healthcare professional listening, they will very much resonate with that concept of, you know, we work so hard to help patients take action in the, in the right direction, but ultimately we, we can't do it for them and we can't get too attached to them taking that action because we have to just be happy that we've done our bit and it, it's up to them. They have free will to, to do what they want. But it's one of the biggest barriers to good health, really. And I wonder in terms of digital behavioral health interventions, what you've found is, are some of the most consequential barriers towards people making that leap from intention to action and how you've designed solutions to overcome these? Decreasing friction tends to be the most effective barrier remover in terms of getting someone to in in terms of closing that intention action gap and i think that is evidenced by the the relative efficacy of something like defaults right if you if you change the default that that can have an incredible impact on someone's behavior if you just like people just (laughs) go towards the the you know the status quo the the easiest choice most often so unless they have a you know a strong aversion or you know a habit in the other direction um changing the default uh or you know reducing friction can is probably the, the more impactful thing to do rather than something like you know increasing fuel making it more fun or you know adding you know, adding games and such to to the thing if you make it you know seamless and invisible it's going to happen yeah the definitely the first step is to remove the friction then you can think about adding fuel right because if you make the most elaborate gamified enjoyable fun animated experience if oh, there's yeah. friction then it's just going to undercut all of that. So it has to be so much fun <laughs> in yeah. order to overcome the yeah. friction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously both are ideal, but I, I get your point about friction is actually the top priority. And then you can yeah. think about um, how to build on top of that. Okay. What do you think are the most unmet needs in mental health? And how do you envision emerging technologies serving these needs? Yeah. Interesting. So, I would back up first and uh and just say when we when we talk about mental health I think we're making a mistake by just thinking about the mind when we're talking about mental health. I think so often we forget that the mind is in many ways just an illusion, right? Where it's, it comes out of our the the manifestation of our physical bodies and our neurons and so on. And I think that that there's this false dichotomy between mental and physical health right and so often when we're when we're talking about mental health we're just thinking about you know th- things like uh, you know meditation and uh going out in nature and and um really there's some very compelling research out there showing that uh you know one of the best ways to feel better 
mentally is to do something physical, right? So exercise, uh, it, it, it's shown over and over, can be more effective than antidepressants in some clinical populations that are that are diagnosed with depression. And so I would urge the mental health community to remember that physical, our physical bodies are such an integral and important part of our minds and our mental health and our well-being and so on. Um, and a lot of the ways, honestly, that we think about improving mental health, you know, changing your mindset, reframing things, um, you know, back to meditating for, for two, two minutes a day, two or three minutes or so on, those are actually not all that effective, especially when you, care, you compare it to something like going on a daily walk. And so I would say, you know, maybe the the unmet need is bringing in the the physical need in order to amplify mental health and maybe not thinking of these as discrete and separate functions of course our mind comes from physiological processes we're not quite sure how consciousness emerges from that just yeah. yet but it, it is a it is a phenomenon and i think your point there of don't overlook the importance of investing in physical health in order to improve mental health is is an important one and it's it's a fresh one to bring to this discussion so yeah that's that's very very interesting and and hopefully uh, the emerging technologies in this space can build that into their service as well not just focusing on the psychological aspects directly but indirectly improving the psychological by improving the physical i will say one more thing to to the topic of unmet needs and i think that often the the emphasis is so much placed on individuals and you know, like your own you know taking this burden upon yourself that you must fix your mental health and so many uh, many of digital health apps are are exactly that they're like okay you know you're not feeling well what are you doing wrong and so it's this completely unfair expectation that you can change everything in the world that is wrong <laughs> that is like that is really put you in this in this place anyway maybe there are some things that you're responsible for but there's so many environmental political factors that you know can bring people down if you think about our social structures and inequality like really there's so much work that needs to be done in terms of rebuilding systems um, whether it's to facilitate social connection or, or get rid of systemic inequities, um, that I, th I think it's unfair <laughs> to place so much of that burden on the individual when really there's so much work that needs to be done in the world. Yeah, hopefully technology has a role to play in fostering that compassion for the users, not just telling them where they have been yeah. on their phone for too long or exactly. uh, when they haven't uh, <laughs> slept long enough, uh, but also maybe saying, hey, this stuff in the world is very stressful. Let's just take a moment to just explain how naturally this is going to cause, uh, uh, you know, uh, stress and take a toll on your, mm -hmm. you know, how you're thinking yeah. and feeling. Acknowledge both acknowledging the role of those other factors, but also maybe changing those changing those factors and doing what we can in yeah, other ways. Yeah. yeah and true. maybe that's outside the scope of our of our digital health products, but still nonetheless important. Yeah, it, it does have consequences, so it's definitely relevant. I just hope um yeah, the the people who are actually capable of, of making changes there 
uh, engage in this kind of discourse, but I am slightly doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so my last question, which um, brings to an end to what's been an extremely insightful discussion, is what are you working on right now that excites you the most? Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, I, I would say I'm most excited about the work that I'm doing with Nuance. Um, so with some of my my close, very talented behavioral science colleagues, we're, we've created the consultancy. And um, yeah, we're, we're trying to figure out how to really work with organizations and specifically product teams to apply some of these insights and make their products much better and, you know, scientifically informed, maybe do some research, um, but not, not pushing research on, on people who are not, who are not ready for it. Um, but certainly finding ways to make more effective products using behavioral science. Mm -hmm. And infusing behavioral science into an unlimited number of products through this agency, right? Rather than being just that one company working on exactly. one product. Exactly. That's that's, cool. that's the goal is that we can have a much bigger impact by um, doing a little bit everywhere, <laughs> sprinkling yeah. ourselves throughout the product universe. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of a discussion I had with a professor at the Imperial College London, um, Professor Rafael Calvo, in one of the previous episodes. His whole philosophy is to implement well-being in the design of every technology whether yes. that be microsoft office or mm -hmm. gmail um, yeah. being able to prioritize well-being there um, and everywhere um, may just have a, you know a massive impact compared to expecting people to rely on one hail mary app on their phone mm -hmm. that is gonna suddenly take them from um, you know poor mental health to, to great mental health and yeah. it's similar to to what you've just described there with being able to make the, these contributions in in a much more of a um, multi-pronged approach and in so many different angles which ultimately create a system that mm -hmm. is elevated in terms of its uh its um you know human-centered design so that's awesome wonderful yeah no that that sounds great um i would love to hear how he's <laughs> Oh, he's improving well-being through Microsoft Office. Yeah. <laughs> that he's got some ideas, difficult. which, are, which uh, are very, very cool. But awesome. um, yeah, it's, I think it would be relevant particularly for, for yourself because of uh, you know, how you are, are not limited to any one product, but open to yeah. bringing what you value to, to so many different products, which is, uh, which is fantastic. So. Aileen, it has been an absolute pleasure to learn about the incredible work that you continue to do in translating behavioral concepts to tangible product designs. Awesome stuff. So for everyone listening, how can people support and follow your work? Hmm. Well, uh, I, I suppose find me on LinkedIn. I have a new series in Forbes um, where I interview product leaders and talk about how they are incorporating behavioral design in their product decisions. So um, follow that, read those articles. Um, and yeah, generally I'm around. <laughs> I'm on the internet. Cool. All of that will be linked in the description. And um, yeah, uh, I look forward to keeping very much in the loop of all that stuff as well. Awesome. Same. Thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. It's been great.
Thank you so much for having me. Every startup that has featured on MindTech is solving a mental health problem with a technology-enabled solution. To get a full picture of all the problems these startups are working on and all the solutions they're offering, sign up to the email list in the description to access the MindTech matrix. This is the first visual representation of how mental health problems are being matched by innovative solutions. You'll also be updated whenever there's a new episode and get early access to test some of the products that are discussed in the podcast. Everything you need is in the description.